Hooray for Hollywood, starring Tom Johnson and hosted by Modern Times Magazine, the podcast featuring the backbone of the California film industry. And now, here's Tom. Welcome to another edition of Hooray for Hollywood. My guest on today's program is Chris Nibley, a bona fide rarity. He's a native Angelina. Chris has been a director of photography in L.A. for more than two decades. They shot over 300 television commercials and worked on more than 30 movies, including Race to Witch Mountain, Herbie Fully Loaded, 50 First Base, The Adams Family, L.A. Story, which I love, and uh, such television shows as Shield, uh, Agents of Shield, sorry, Outsource, Heroes, and Dirty Sexy Money. Chris is a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and is currently on the main committee for the Academy Scientific and Technical Awards. He's also a member of the International Cinematographers Guild, the Visual Effects Society, and the Royal Photographic Society. Despite all that running around, he's taken time out to chat with us today. Welcome, Chris, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Tom. No problem. I hey, I just want to. Yeah. I just want to start out with, uh, for people that might not know, including me, no, I'm just kidding. What does a VP, director of uh, photography, do? He brings the imagery of the director's vision to reality. Basically, he's a combination of technology, of film and video, and post-production, and uh, a craftsman in creating uh, images that are in line with the director's vision. It's it's very different than still photography. We don't take just great individual pictures. We have to do a continuous uh, uh, scene in which things may be shot in different places at different times, and they just all have to match perfectly. So it's this combination of technical expertise and uh, art but working under the director, we're, we're actually uh, totally creating his vision. So how did, how did, how does that work exactly, Chris? Like what? Like give me a sort of a thumbnail sketch of like you know you're coming at this from your expertise and you're talking to a director, and and I guess you're you know talking about what he wants and how how do you reach a consensus or what would sort of a sample discussion be if you can bring us into that a little bit on, on how you you know create this uh you know this stuff well it's interesting because every director is different they'll have totally different uh, uh approaches to cinematography and uh even the, just the way they work have direct directors that are not really that interested in staging and lighting and they're really more in working with the director, with the actors, and they've left a lot to me and my camera operator, and we set up the shots, and they're happy with it. Uh, and then I've had the other extreme, where you have uh, directors that operate the camera, and uh, have a may have been cinematographers or just are very knowledgeable, and they are very specific about what they want sometimes to the point of <laughs> uh, uh -huh. being a little bit difficult. But uh, uh, you, basically you'd start by uh, looking, the director would pick films that he liked the photography for, 
and uh, were appropriate to the movie or television commercial, whatever it is, we're going to do. And so he'd pick out some some kind of lighting and concept stuff that we want to do. And then we all watch all these different shows and kind of get an idea of what we're looking for. Because, you know, a mystery is different than an action show. And right. uh, so we come up with basically the idea of what's what is the look. And now with yeah. digital, uh, we take the look all the way through to post in tests and we come up with a look uh, which is color correction and contrast and filtration and all that stuff and we can do that pretty easily uh, now uh, doing tests whereas in film it was a much more elaborate process and and so it's pretty nice that you can come up with these looks and also now in some sets you they'll actually have a DIT, a digital image technician, who will do the looks on set. So as we're shooting, they can apply different color corrections and contrast to it. Uh, so the director can look at it and make sure he and everyone else is happy. I, I don't do that all the time because it's kind of time consuming. And once we know we can get the look, uh, we're pretty good and we're We'll sample some stuff, but we don't want to uh, bring the lab with us to the shoot. And uh, so that's that's pretty much it. It's it's. I mean, obviously, the digital domain has now changed everything. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, so it's, how has it's that become, changed? I mean, has it made it easier, or is it what? Uh, how do you feel about all these new changes, and how how do you keep pace with all of it? Uh, keeping pace is interesting because once we had the you know integrated circuits and 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 the whole digital world, everything can be developed so quickly that it does change very fast. And a lot of people that were not in say the camera business, you know, we had Panavision and and uh, Aeroflex, and now there's 20 camera manufacturers because they're really building a computer with a sensor in it rather than uh, something that runs film through a camera, which is much more right. limited. Uh, right. But uh, I, I, I personally love the digital domain because I, I got to it early because a lot of my friends were shooting a lot of features and some TV, but until we had the telecine, we had to do everything on in television with optical printing, and once they could convert... Uh, film into just videotape, not digital, but just a videotape format. Well, mm -hmm. then we could do compositing and stuff in real time and do color corrections, but it could only be done for television in standard definition. And right. But we had a tremendous advantage because we like shooting on film, but then we could post on tape and do all the tape stuff. So when I go to a feature and they couldn't do that, it was... Um, it was quite difficult, and actually, yeah. I was the one that pr proposed we were doing uh, the Babe uh, about Babe Ruth in Chicago on Wrigley Field. And before yeah. it started, I suggested there was a company that had come out with film ins and film outs. In other words, they could record film to a digital uh, format and then mm -hmm. work on it and send it back out to film. And so we mm -hmm. did some of the first crowd record replication scenes 
by we shot it both ways because the production company wasn't quite sure. So I shot this division, which is a large format uh, mm-hmm. film negative right. used for mm-hmm. optical printing. And then we shot that. And then we also shot what we call four proof, four proof which is the standard film size as, as uh, regular motion picture cameras, which is what the digital system took in. And we did them both. And it actually, it, it actually worked well. And one of the, things you'd use compositing for is when you have a huge crowd scene and you have Wrigley Field and you only have 5,000 people, you shoot a, you lock the camera down, you shoot a group of people in an area and then you stop the camera, you move them all over, you shoot it again, you move them down, you mm-hmm. shoot again, you end up with, you know, 20, 30,000 people. Right. And uh, it was really nice because we could do that in near real time more easily and that was really one of the first times anybody tried that. <laughs> oh, wow, wow. What would you say is uh, maybe your most pleasant memory on a shoot and maybe your most horrific memory on a shoot? It could be a movie or a TV. Is there anything that sort of stands out in a kind of a funny I survived it way or anything like that? Well, you know, it's interesting because when you get on a feature film, they can be long, particularly big feature films. They're long. So when things kind of go a little south, you're still in the middle of the shoot and you're just in the middle of it. So you got a long way to go. And I, I have a philosophy that's really helped me, which is I'm at the director's beck and call. I may disagree with him, even seriously disagree with him, but I have to do what he wants or I should leave the picture. I mean, it's not fair for me to um, second guess him or, feel like my stuff, my eyes are better, and they, they agree, but, you know, if you go, he's the boss, I don't like him a lot, I'm going to work with him every day, I'm going to be pleasant, and we'll get through this, and we usually do. I, I've been on stuff where um, I was second unit or, or visual effects, and it got real bad, and that's why it was really nice to be on second unit or visual effects and have our own our own group where we could actually, you know, move forward, and that would be uh, uh, that would be good. But as far as pleasant stuff goes, I mean, almost all of it has has been pleasant. I mm-hmm. love the people in the film industry, crew guys. I mean, they're the hardest working people in the world. They yeah. do have the picture. No, it's commercials or documentaries. They have a picture in mind. They're just amazing people. They're the guys you want to go to war with. As it's been yeah. And, uh, yeah, well, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I like these guys. And basically, any time a crew is humming along, if you're working well and mm-hmm. then you're moving forward, I'm happy. I mean, that's the pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Hey, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you're, you're descended from uh, Hollywood royalty, well, maybe that's putting it a little uh, to the extreme, but <laughs> you, you told me all about your mom, uh, you know, who is uh, Linda Sterling. She was a, an actress uh, back in Republic uh, Pictures days. I did, did a lot of Westerns. And uh, could you tell me a little bit about that? You know, what it was like to grow up in a, in a family that was totally in the business? Because that's sort of a rarity. Uh, not in Hollywood, not in the fifties. <laughs> but right, uh, but actually, yeah, it was a little unusual. Uh, the thing is, my dad was a writer producer, so he worked at home, and my mother was uh, she took a break. She had my brother and I, and 
took a break to raise us until she couldn't stand us anymore and then went back back to work and uh she you know had done a lot of public pictures and pictures for other other companies and when she went back to work she mostly did television so she did uh you know a lot of kick carson's lighter the millionaire real mccoy's and she did soap operas and she was really uh, uh very popular in soap operas because she was a stage trained actress and mm-hmm. most of the back in the day remember these soap operas were live they weren't even live on tape they were live yeah that's <laughs> and, right. uh, yeah so um a lot of times because the nature of the way they staged it, they would bring out director, stage directors from New York to, to do these soap operas. And uh, my mom, having this theatrical background, couldn't actually know her lines because it was like a play. And a lot of the Hollywood actors really weren't geared for that. They were really geared for starting and stopping. And my right. mom, one or, yeah, one or two pages, you know, or something like that. Your mom was, or, uh, her nickname was One Take Linda, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She, they laughed. She'd been uh, being a parent for a time. And then she came back and a lot of crew guys still knew her. And she'd go through these long, and we're talking about six pages. I mean, these things were long. Yeah. And uh, then they would, you know, cut and look around and it's perfect. <laughs> you know, uh, and there, there just wasn't a lot of uh, room for, uh, you know, the problems when you're doing stuff live like that. It's incredible. And of course there would be, uh, you know, other actors would miss their lines or they do something. So you just had to know how to improvise, <laughs> keep it going. Plus even the cameras, I mean, they bump into stuff, you know, they're these big, Brother. <laughs> Big video, and they, and you just have to, uh, you know, make it work. So that was that's really good training, right? And you, your parents met at Republic Pictures in 1944, right? I mean, what? Yeah. Tell us how how your your mom got signed and and how they met and all that kind of stuff. Those are really fun stories. Yaka Yaka yeah. Canute figures into this, I think. Yes, he does. He uh, he's a great friend of the family, and he was a personal friend of mine for uh, a long time. He's uh, just a wonderful man, uh, and uh, historic when it comes to stunts and second unit action directing. But uh, uh, Public was looking for a, a young le- leading lady for their new serial, The Tiger Woman. Of course, the fact that The Tiger Woman wore a leopard print outfit never made any sense. But <laughs> Western. Western costume, which is where the B studios like Republic would go to this huge warehouse, independently owned warehouse and just pick out costumes so they didn't have to make them. They had a leopard skin, so it was close enough. But they were uh, going to put her in this movie, The Tiger Woman. She had the uh, audition. And uh, now the, the thing about being an actor is you never say no to anything. So they asked her if she could. Uh, you could skillfully ride a horse. Of course, my mother, who probably had been on a horse a couple of times, maybe, said, of course. And, a, and then uh, one of the parts of the addition was they put her on a, a horse and uh, out in, uh, in the valley, probably one of the, one of the ranches, one of the movie ranches. And Yakima was directing the, uh, the, her test 
and one of his, his cowboys slapped the horse on his butt and it took off like a bath. And of course, my mom was no rider, but she held on. <laughs> she hung on and that's what they wanted to see. And after she gone far enough, Yak just turned and nodded to one of his cowboys who took off after her and, you know, brought the horse back in and she was hired for the show. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah, and that was the only time she ran into trouble. I mean, uh, Republic was definitely a, a, a low-budget uh, company and there would be accidents. I mean, uh, when she was in a tank and, you know, they weren't, they don't have safety officers and divers and all the stuff they have now. And she was in some, uh, Republic had some famous caves and they had some famous uh, tanks uh, that you could use for water stuff, like water. And she was like in some cereal turning blue. And somebody said, you know, we should let her out now. But <laughs> it was very, it was very, it, it wasn't average risk because these guys were all the crew guys and actors were actually quite good, but it was just yeah. cheap. <laughs> I remember yeah. my dad told me one time they were they had to go to a distant location like Iverson's ranch or one of the cowboy ranches and shoot, and then they had to go back to the stage and finish the day. So my dad had them shoot a fight scene on the truck driving back. Oh boy. <laughs> so he could make up time. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Oh man, oh man, like a time study man, boy. Yeah, getting the most yeah. out of it, getting the most out of the yeah. hours. Wow. Exactly. You know, and thinking and of your dad. Yeah. Thinking of yeah. your dad, he. Uh, you know, I mean, you, and you had told me this the other day, and I, I, I don't think you had ever told me this story before, but he could speak. German and he like hung out with the Munchkins when the Wizard of Oz was being filmed and, and tell us about that what happened with that that was pretty yeah funny. my dad was working various jobs at MGM when they were making the Wizard of Oz he was born in 1908 so he was in his 30s and um, uh, he my dad was this raconteur that was amazing he could go into any bar in any country and at the end of the day, everyone loves him. He was just this Hollywood guy. As one old Academy member, I was at a function for the Motion Picture Academy, and this, I sat down with this one older man, and I mentioned my name, and he said, are you related to Slump? And I said, yeah. And he started telling me stories about my father, and then finally he looked at me and said, I probably shouldn't be telling you this. But, um, uh, yeah, so he was, uh, he spoke fluent German. So during the Wizard of Oz, uh, they needed a, a very large number of little people who could basically dance and move. So they brought in the Singer Midgets, which was a well-known da uh, dance troupe from Germany, and they didn't speak English. So when these little guys who liked to drink, as did my father, uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, it was me you and know, my five foot eleven father uh, dragging all these. Uh, uh, people uh, down uh, uh, Culver Boulevard to the bar uh, <laughs> must have been a sight. And then my dad also said they they kind of get drunk and fall off the stools, but they just laugh. So you can imagine my five foot eleven father in a whole bar of dwarfs, uh, of little people, and uh, that would have been that would have been 
that's a surreal scene. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just getting plastered and, and yeah. I guess probably singing all night and everything else. Oh yeah. Geez. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that would have been that would have made the B reel of any DVD of The Wizard of Oz. Now someone would have like toddled down after him with a camera and filmed that. Yeah. Oh my God! Oh, I know. Well, that's the irony is today with cell phones that would have been documented. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Hey, and and your dad. I mean, he was a prolific screenwriter. Republic and uh, and you know he was a cowboy during the depression in portland i mean so he was a re- he was the real deal uh, yeah he he was, he was born in portland in 08 and uh, when the depression hit there really weren't any jobs so he uh he did work on a horse i don't know that he was a rodeo cowboy but he you know they just worked and, and moved cattle and he mm-hmm. did that and he developed this really love of of uh, cowboys and what they did, and then later on stuntmen, which all started as cowboys originally. And yeah. uh, so, and he was also an authority on the Civil War. And several of his okay. movies were wow. Civil War related, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but uh, when he, he, my mother was working on the serials and often they would have two directors. They would have Yak or one of the other guys as the action director who just do the non-speaking, all the wild stunts and yeah. which there were a lot of, and then they'd have another director who do all the dialogue and that way they could right. make it go faster. And Yak was one of the ones that mm-hmm. was uh, the uh, uh, action director. And sure. Yak was uh, the most amazing guy. I mean, he took, cowboys in the old days it would be a cowboy would fall off horse and break his ankle and be given seven dollars or something and there was no concept of being a stuntman they would just fall over and so yak said well you know i if i can fall off a horse and not hurt myself i can do it again and get more money (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and he invented all these incredible uh, devices, quick release stirrups, and uh, little spreaders for, between the horses, so you could, you know, uh, mount and move around horses more easily. Um, right. A rig, he, he had rigs to trip stagecoaches, so the stagecoaches could be released from the horses and then fall over right on cue. Right. He, you know, he had no schooling at all. I mean, he he went to. I don't think any schooling and but he was also a rodeo champion. He was a three time world rodeo champion and could there was wow. nothing he couldn't do with a horse. Well and, and I know uh, he's 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 famous for uh his the the chariot race putting that together from Ben Hur, the Charlton Heston movie. I mean, which is legendary. And which I think one or two yeah. stuntmen died during that, as I recall, or you know, but it's it's an absolutely legendary action sequence, one of the greatest. Yeah, and it's funny because he was older then, but uh, nobody knew horses like Yak, and they brought him in to direct the chair sequence. And his son Joe was uh, the uh, stunt double for Charles Heston on several movies. Yeah, and and there's one famous incident where uh, Joe uh, was subbing for Charles and he 
is in a, they're going, you know, and this is before computers. <laughs> this is before anything. And these right. guys, yeah, there was some, some not necessarily process, but there was, you know, close-ups that were a little more controlled. But uh, these guys, certainly the stuntmen that were doing the stunt, this was dangerous stuff. And yeah. and really uncontrollable because you have these huge multi-horse rigs and all this stuff. So they were thundering around one of the straightaways, and one of the uh, chairs collapsed right in front of Joe, and he had to jump over the this uh, pile of debris on there. And it's in the they left it in the movie. And, wow. Uh, he, the horse score, he's kicked up in the air, and you can actually see him. He flips forward and cuts his chin, and oh. he, it, and it's in the it's in the movie. And then they go to uh, he goes to first aid. They stitch him up, and he's back at work. Yeah, <laughs> just another day. Yeah, you know, they're, they're yeah, and, yeah incredible dad, people. Yeah, no, it, that's very incredible. But your dad wrote a lot of westerns, right? He, he worked uh, yeah. with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and Randolph yeah. Scott and Jerry Cooper. And Did you ever meet any of those guys? Uh, yeah, I did. I casually, usually on the lot. I, I, we knew uh, Roy Rogers pretty well because my dad did tons of short, Roy Rogers shorts and features. So we knew him and... The, the interesting story was one of my dad's best friends in the Republic was R. Dale Butts, who was the head of music. And he was a Southern gentleman from Kentucky, just a charming man. And he had been married to a woman named, yes, Fanny Butts. So they got, they got divorced, and she married Roy and became Dale Evans. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and we... We actually own, I think, an apartment building that she used to live in. But um, so, yeah, my dad knew all these people. And, and John Wayne, remember, Republic was definitely the kind of obviously B movie, but John Wayne was under contract to, to them and made several movies for them. And my dad right. uh, did work on several things. So I'd see him, you know, uh, uh, a little later, because, uh, you know, I, I was born in 48, so uh, mm -hmm. I think he was probably gone by then, but I would see him uh, later on very that, And you, uh, you know, your uh, your dad worked on, uh, he wrote additional dialogue for some of the Marx Brother movies, The Big Store and Love Happy, which were two of their last movies. And, yeah. uh, and, and Groucho came over to eat one night or something, or what? Or, and your oh, yeah. brother was in some in a Lou Costello movie, or maybe it was a skit after dinner or something. I don't know. What yeah, the deal? no, but the thing, my dad was a great friend of Groucho's because my dad was very bright, and Groucho was incredibly intelligent and, and read tremendously. And yeah. they would meet from time to time. And I remember once at the NBC uh, commissary, we were in there, and for some reason, Groucho called my dad the phony Irishman. And I never knew why, because my dad was Scottish, uh, yeah. you know, but second generation, he'd born here. But it was just funny, he called him the phony Irishman. And my dad tried to sell Groucho the, 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 uh, the Four Chairs, which was, was ultimately made into a movie, but he thought the Four Chairs would be great for the Marx Brothers, but uh, uh, for whatever reason, that, that never got made. But, uh, yeah, wow. and... Uh, 
But uh, yeah, Groucho was terrific, and my dad. Oh, oh, and the tie into him him doing dialogue in those movies was uh, my dad's. One of my dad's writing partners was Dean Leisner, who had been a child star, uh, known as Dinky mm-hmm. Dean, and. And Dean's father was Chuck Reisner, and Chuck directed those movies, those 1950s Marsh Brothers movies. The only mm-hmm. reason the Marsh Brothers movies, and in many cases, they're not actually seen together. It's, they do individual things, because the only reason they really did it was because Chico needed the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, what, that's yeah. sort of a legendary thing. He'd, he'd have gambling yeah. guests or something, Yeah, the rest of the brothers would bail them out. They'd all, okay, yeah. well, another movie now. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh boy. And, and uh, that's why they aren't really together as a comedy team, and then they would just come in as they had availability. But because uh, my dad was, uh, you know, friends with Chuck, the director, he'd come in and punch up lines because it was they were not really Marx Brothers movies, obviously. Right. Right. He was, uh, yeah, like a, almost like a, the old term script doctor. You know, yeah, he'd come exactly. in. And, you know, yeah, exactly. uh, I remember that. Hey, and you know, you he, told me a great—you yeah. told me a great story once about when you were a kid in Burbank, and I think it was outside of Hanna Barbera or whatever. When the, oh, the yeah. animation studios, the dumpster <laughs> story—you got you got to tell this story. This is—it'd uh, it, be tantamount to a kid in the Midwest finding the rookie card of Mickey Mantle in a dumpster and then, you know, keeping it or something. But tell me, tell everyone about that. What happened? Basically, uh, when I was a kid, Hanna-Barbera had just built a new building on the south side of the West uh, on the way to Hollywood. And uh, it was a fairly small building. And you have to remember at this time, Hanna-Barbera was a powerhouse. They were, they were doing Huckleberry Hound. They had all these primetime cartoon shows, which was very unusual. They had, Huckleberry Hound, Yogi Bear, Flintstones, Jetsons. It was unbelievable. And, of course, uh, they used two or three cells for each show. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, no, animation, they, they, though. Right. Yeah, they'd come up with a way, which I would call nomination, where they could use very right. few cells and cycle it through. But it's still, to do a half-an-hour show, 24-minute show, was astronomical. And uh, so, basically... My friend and I, Larry, we would ride our 10-speed bikes over to Hanna-Barbera, uh, the street from us, and the uh, dumpster was totally unlocked, and they took the entire cartoon in order and just stacked it in the, in the dumpster, the whole cartoon, everything. So we, we dumpster dive, we take out select cells, a bunch of cells, and we try to match up the, the 16, uh, 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 you know, size backgrounds, the, the longer backgrounds, uh, to, right. the, to the cells, and then we, the cell would have different eyes and nose and mouth. So then we try to line them all up so we could have a, a full, complete set. And they were all there, but there were hundreds of them. And of course, being 12 years old, uh, anything in a dumpster obviously had no value. So we'd cut them out with our scissors and do stuff. And then ultimately, <laughs> you know, you'd move on and throw all it away. And of course, uh. The amazing thing is, is because Hanna-Barbera didn't throw all that stuff away, they ended up with virtually nothing. Most of anything you buy for Hanna-Barbera is a re- recreation. It's just a kind of a fake made for presentation. All the original ones, they just threw away. And the really funny part was, was when 
finally, when we went back to Canterbury to, to take more cells, and the funny thing is, is if it's in the dumpster, it's yours legally. You can take it out of the dumpster, uh, and it would have been ours. But um, right. uh, uh, you would have thought maybe if they're going, all these kids, well, myself and Larry, if these kids are taking these cells out, maybe, you know, they have some value, maybe... Uh, of course, you have to realize storing them would have been astronomical because the number they came with every week. But nevertheless, uh, they would have thought maybe there would be some aftermarket value in these. Uh, but no, all they did was, because we were taking the stuff out, all they did was end up locking the dumpster. That was it. They no. kept throwing it away. They just didn't want us to have access to it. But I mentioned this to people that collect animation, and, and the fact is, I would have had the lock on it. I would have put every every thing they'd ever done, and no one you else would have had it. Cartoons, I know. Every animation yeah, cell from the Flintstones or what? Oh my God! But I, but I would have been like, I would have been like the Beers because I would have controlled the you know the Beers for Diamonds controls the market and sets the price. I could have exactly. set the price. You would, you would have cornered the animation market and Hanna Barbera cells. You would have been yeah. The, yeah, you would have been the grand poobah, you know. Oh yeah, and and that stuff would have been worth money because I mean, all those cartoons are there's nothing available from them. No, and I mean, everyone, you know, is uh, you know, I mean, that's uh, you know, that's people's childhood now. So I mean, yeah. people that you know, baby boomers now would have said, "Oh my God, you know this uh, this Fred Flintstone Barney Rubble thing. I gotta have it. I'll, yeah, I'll pay whatever, and whatever." It, and it, absolutely, know. and and if I would have had the whole set, the background, the body, <laughs> the eyes, everything all matched up, framed, which I've seen done with other other cartoons. And then my dad later went to work as a writer producer and story editor, executive story editor at Hanna Barbera when they had moved across the street, become a big business. And it was funny because he uh, always said his job there was to take any, you know, wit, humor, style out of all the scripts that came in. You know, he had to homogenize <laughs> them. Oh, no. Not, no wit. That wasn't allowed. Oh, God. And, you know, kind of, yeah, bland like the backgrounds, but that, whatever that, the gyroscope backgrounds where you'd see Barney running or something, and it would be the same right. stone house every two seconds or something, yeah. But it was also the dialogue. I mean, you could have, I mean, there's yeah. cartoons that were very witty, like uh, you know, Warner's and these other ones that had a little oh, edge. Oh, yeah, right. And, yeah, truck and, uh, and yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, also, so when he uh, was working at Hedderver, I'd go to the recording sessions with B. Benadurad, who did, did Betty, and... Um, sure, uh, he was in um, uh, Petticoat Junction. Petticoat Junction, yeah. and the uh, 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 our friend, uh, uh, you know, the guy who did Bugs, Bugs Bunny. Now, uh, oh, uh, Mel Blank. Mel Blank was there, and he was hilarious. Yeah. He was the funniest guy in the world, and he was so charming. All these people were charming, really nice, and of course, I, I was with him. I went up and. And my father said, he wants to tell you a joke. So I told him a joke, and he laughed, you know. It was a kid's joke, but he thought it was cute. So that was really fun. That's very nice. also, I met I met Mel yeah. Blank once, and he. Uh, I always thought it was funny. His speaking voice to me always sounded like Barney Rubble. 
I mean, it was like yeah. that was probably one of the few voices he didn't really have to reach for. It just seemed like that's right. You know, that's the way he talked naturally. I always got a kick out of that. But yeah, absolutely. So sure. and then you know we ended up knowing quite a few animators that uh, uh, mm-hmm. were quite famous, and, and they were they were to be an animator, you have to be odd. It's it's just a, a different way you look at the world. Uh, and and I've done stuff with animators that have done feature films, and then they, uh, you know, the things they want to do in live action, they work in animation, but they're a little too, can't quite do them in, uh, <laughs> in yeah, real yeah. time. Yeah, right, right. Hey, last question, um, kind of circling back to, you know, what you do uh, as a mm-hmm. uh, director of photography. What advice would you give? I, this is sort of my um, sort of a Proustian question thing that I get, or questionnaire that I give to everyone or a lot of people that are in the industry. What advice would you give to someone just starting out or trying to break in or wanting to do what you did so well for so many years. What is there any kind of practical advice that you would give someone like that of what to do? Well, it's uh, it's interesting because being in in a, a art craft uh, 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 job, uh, which we call a uh, we're kind of uh, uh, you know it's not it's not a, a standard job that. You could, you go to medical school and you get a job out of it, and you go to, you know, uh, law school law and get a job. School, you go, right. Yeah, you can go, and you can get a job, but if you go to, you know, FC and you graduate, uh, there's no guarantees. As a matter of fact, right. <laughs> probability is not great. But um, right. basically, uh, it's totally changed. I mean, it was... There's still uh, we still have a strong union, uh, uh, camera local, but it's very very different now because there is uh, the camera union is much more open. If you get the days, you can be in the local, and there's other documentary and commercial work that you can do. But the idea is now that the um, we have this digital world where you can buy a very good camera for very reasonable money or rent. A good camera for very little money, as opposed to when it was kind of uh, controlled by these very expensive cameras. Uh, yeah. Even if you buy a less expensive camera, you've got to shoot stuff and learn, and that's a great way to do it. One of the things that I've always done in classes that I taught is I do make people watch movies. There's, as you know, you've got all these classic movies, and mm-hmm. they really created the motion picture industry and and how things are done and it's not to say you can't change that because we certainly have now with more current pictures or are different but nevertheless the structure has been around for a long time and you really have to watch it and i've just been watching because we're just done on uh uh, pbs all the buster keatons and oh right if you don't understand Buster Keaton, you really don't understand the film industry at all. <laughs> and uh, uh, there is importance of, of learning technique and style from from doing that, and then going out and criticizing it. 
it may be great, but you say, well, what can I do different? And uh, you can go out and shoot, shoot yourself. I mean, there's a billion things literally on YouTube and uh, Vimeo, and you can just learn. But I think also getting training, whether you go to a um, you know, university, I'm, I have mixed feelings about for-profit schools. Uh, one of the biggest ones that taught film just ran out of business. It was huge. And, uh, you know, right. I think you could probably go to a, a community college and maybe do better uh, mm-hmm. than ending up with a lot of, uh, you know, debt at the end. Uh, but right. again, it's not a, it's not a, uh, uh, it's not an occupation where you start in a money-making level. You have to work your right. way up, even if you gone to a big university but you know the thing you need to find a mentor that's super important you've got to yeah. go to yeah. the uh, the shows uh, that are for motion picture equipment film festivals do that mm-hmm. find people that you admire talk to them often they're very giving and yeah. and the, the really the three things uh, you need are competence professionalism and enthusiasm. If you have those three, that's what I look for in a, uh, a crew member. I'm not looking for a genius or somebody right. to, to, I just want somebody that's really enthusiastic, that has the basic confidence and is professional. And right. you really need those things. Plus you have to, you have to wonder if this is what you really want to do. It's a hard life, but now it's so competitive. Now the, the, yeah. the entry level is so low. And uh, it's it's a tough life, and I, I remember I was uh, talking to a, a friend of mine's son, and they wanted some uh, you know advice about getting in, and I talked to him about it. I took him to show him some equipment. We looked at some movies and stuff, and I hadn't heard him for quite a while after that, which is unusual. Usually they'll call me back and find me, but it was a few months later he, he did. He did email me back and said, you know, it just wasn't for me. <laughs> I looked uh, at that and that's just, and what he did was he was uh, a computer programmer, at least a very high tech guy. And so he got a job working for one of the large animation companies as a, as a tech. So he gets a okay. daily paycheck, but he's still involved in, uh, you know, creating movies. Okay. But being yeah. a... Hey. Yeah, being a, a uh, uh, not having that security, a lot of people like um, a job, and you're never going to do that in this business. Right. It, it used to be right. you could be under contract to a studio, but that's so gone now. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, it's a, a whole new, it's a whole new uh, vista, a whole new world, really, out there. That's true. That's yeah. True. Yeah. Well, hey, and Chris, thanks yeah, so much. Good. Thanks so oh, much for uh, being on the pod today. And it was really great. <laughs> it was uh, a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll uh, talk to you soon, probably tomorrow with coffee over cheese or something. I don't know. Absolutely. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Tom. It was really fun. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Modern Times magazine Hooray for Hollywood podcast starring Tom Johnson. To reach Tom, visit moderntimesmagazine.com 
and click on Contact Us.